Hi, I'm Joe Patrice from Above the Law and Thinking Like a Lawyer, and I'm here with On the Road at the ABA Annual 2016 Conference in San Francisco, California. I'm Rachel Moran. I'm Dean Emerita and Michael J. Connell, Distinguished Professor of Law at UCLA. And I'm Nicole Austin Hillary. I'm the Director and Counsel of the Washington, D.C. Office of the Brennan Center for Justice. And so let's get started with another episode of On the Road with the Legal Talk Network. Well, thanks, everyone, for joining us here today. And we are going to talk about the Supreme Court. It's a little court. You might not have heard of it. Uh, But we just concluded a panel here at ABA Annual. And two of the panelists are here to discuss what we talked about, which was a review of this term, Supreme Court, with more than a few hints at what's coming in the future. So thank you for joining us today. I think the first thing I wanted to talk about, because it was... It was actually the first thing that was discussed in the in the meeting in there, which is kind of the elephant in the room, which the absence of Justice Scalia and what that meant to this term. Obviously, we talk a lot about the four fours, of which there were a few, but he was a driving force on the court in how decisions got made, what was emphasized, what got chosen. Who's really driving that wheel now? Well, you know, it's interesting because I'm not sure there is a clear heir apparent to Justice Scalia, because he was such a unique voice on the court. His dissents were incredibly colorful. His questioning was very memorable. And so I, I believe that we actually had someone on our panel, Neil Katyal, who had argued before the court and said that it wasn't the same without Justice Scalia there. So I'm not sure that he'll have a duplicate. However, there are several justices who are aligned with him philosophically and jurisprudentially, and those would include Justice Thomas, Justice Alito, and Chief Justice Roberts. I will say uh, I agree. It's not clear who is really uh, guiding the court. But I will say this. It seems to me that um, there is a lightness to the court, if you will, in his absence. I think that he was very much a dominant force. And at this point, um, I think there seems to be more of a sharing of decision-making, of influence uh, in terms of the cases uh, and how the opinions are rendered and who's being most vocal and active. Uh, and in many ways, um, you know, that is an interesting change to see, a larger sharing of the responsibility of guiding the court, uh, if you will. That's interesting. So One thing that came up in the panel is that some of this might be happening because the court was bending over backwards to avoid four fours, that maybe there was some softening and cooperative to create decisions that may not be particularly illustrative, but at least weren't four four deadlocks. Do you think this might be a lightness that continues going forward, or was this really just a feature of a court until we get another person, and then they can go back to being bitter and hating each other? I actually think that's going to be determined by who fills that seat. Um, You know, as we all know, the justices' personalities have a huge bearing on the court and how the court operates and and the tenor of the court. So depending on who actually fills that seat, and right now um, we know that Merrick Garland has been nominated to do so, um, I think that will impact whether this lightness, if you will, continues. And certainly if it is Merrick Garland, he is a very well-respected 
jurist. He is seemed to be very fair-minded, very equitable, um, very cooperative in terms of working with other jurists, working with other lawyers. So I think uh, him coming on board will certainly show that there is a continuation of a collegiality, a continuation of fair and open-mindedness um, that will be exhibited. Uh, and I think the, the lawyers who argue before the court as well, in some ways may feel more welcomed <laughs> uh, and, and as though they have more of an opportunity to express their opinions uh, in a way that perhaps they, they hadn't been able to do under Justice Scalia, who again was just such a dominant force in terms of overseeing oral arguments. I mean, well, actually it just struck me. I didn't really even think about, the, about this question, but have you ever done anything with Merrick Garland? I mean, obviously the Brennan Center in, in D.C., it strikes me as though maybe you've had some practice interaction with him? I personally, as the director of our Washington office, have not because mm -hmm. my role is to oversee policy and advocacy. Ah, okay. But I do know that some of our other attorneys at the Brennan Center in their former lives as litigators certainly have worked with Judge Garland. And as someone who's a member of the larger Washington legal community, I will say that um, I interact with many people who have worked with him and I've heard nothing but glowing reviews of him about his fairness, about his collegiality, about his willingness to work uh, across many lines and work very fairly um, with many people, how much he's given to the community, uh, given of himself, how humble he is. Um, so I, I've heard nothing but good things that, that leads me to believe that he will be a positive influence on the court should he eventually be seated. Yeah. So it would be very interesting if at this moment when we feel that the court is being politicized in ways that are very profound by the judicial appointments process, that at the end of the day, if the appointment were confirmed, if the nomination were confirmed, that we might end up with a somewhat less internally politicized court, even though we know that in this election there's been a swirl of kind of claims about what the future of the court is and how it will affect the country. So I think that's a very interesting possibility. This is the obvious next question, but what do we think are, go ahead and handicap, Merrick Garland, is he going to end up on this court? I, let's begin from the premise that Clinton's going to win, which polls would suggest. Garland or is another person going to end up on that court? If you want. I think that if Hillary Clinton does indeed ascend to the White House, uh, that Merrick Garland will likely uh, be confirmed uh, as the next Supreme Court justice. Mrs. Clinton has spoken highly of Mr. Garland, and particularly if the Senate also turns, uh, I think that that makes the probability that he will be confirmed even greater. And certainly members of the advocacy and social justice communities have spoken highly of him, highly support his nomination and his eventual confirmation to the court. I also think that a President Clinton uh, will assume that she will have several other opportunities to seat other jurists. And I think out of a sense of fairness and out of a recognition uh, of, the, of the fact that he has been nominated and has been waiting 142 days now, <laughs> that for many reasons, the prudent thing to do would be to confirm uh, Judge Garland. And yeah, that was one thing that you said in the panel that I thought was really interesting was that a lot of, to the extent there might be discontent on the left, a lot of left-leaning groups have spent a lot of political capital really yes. pushing for him that it would be kind of weird to switch course. Yes, and I think also it would be a way to send a message that we do look at the merits of the candidates, that this is not just a political football or a way to gain strategic advantage, but we're really trying to approach the process with integrity. And so here she has a terrific candidate who's been queued up and lined up for a long time. It would also free her up to do a lot of other things that she'll have to do to start off her administration in the decisive way that I think she would want to. Yeah, I think that was also in the panel mm -hmm. that... There's probably, we're 
let's just assume there might be a few cabinet yeah. battles. And yes. Maybe, maybe the maybe the jurist that Orrin Hatch once said, if you put him up, we would have mm. no problem. Yeah. Is is an easy yeah. easy pitch to take. Well, going off a little bit on the who's driving the court discussion. One decision that was really interesting to me was the dissent that Justice Sotomayor wrote in the Streif decision. Uh, and this, this came up in the panel, too. And it, to me, it struck me as though she was really taking on kind of a... I thought she was stepping into like a Scalia of the other side role. A bit like, mm-hmm. I'm now going to talk about bigger issues than just what's going on here. Yes. So. Well, this was a case that was addressing whether or not evidence needed to be suppressed under the Fourth Amendment. And Justice Sotomayor's dissent, I would actually say is very different from a Justice Scalia dissent in this sense, that I think she's really trying to put the cases in a larger social context. She doesn't see the court as isolated from the circumstances surrounding it. She is by no means a textualist. She is by no means an originalist. She says that the law and the Constitution matter right now for the people who live under these laws. And so I think that her approach is very different, but it is a powerfully written, eloquent dissent. And in that sense, I think she has the gift of the word in the way that he did. Very memorable phrases, very hard-hitting phrases. And so I think the tone may seem similar, but I think the jurisprudential approach is very different. Yes, I, I would. Obviously, it's the, the kind of the opposite side of the coin, I suppose. Yes. But, yes. Yeah. And she's actually trying to make a statement about the criminal justice system, and I think she's speaking not just to her colleagues on the court, but to the broader society, to other institutions that are responsible for the integrity of our criminal justice system, and she's really putting race at the center of her analysis. And in the portion of her opinion where she talks about race cites critical race scholars, which Mm -hmm. I don't think we see very much in the Supreme Court opinions, she's writing alone. She was joined by Justice Ginsburg, but not in that section of the opinion, which is the one that I think goes the farthest towards saying, let's just take judicial notice of the world out there and the ways in which it's stratified and racialized. I mean, this also leads into an issue that I know that, Nicole, you work on a lot, which is voting. This dissent struck me as though this could have wider ramifications for we're going to start seeing, I would assume, some gerrymandering cases, some a bunch of voting issues that are now coming up in the wake of Shelby opening them up again. Yes, absolutely. But I, it would be remiss of me if I didn't mm-hmm. note that over the past 10 days, uh, there have been some lower court decisions dealing with the voter ID issue that have taken into account the impact of race on voting in the nation. Um, I think that we will continue to see cases dealing with race and voting. Yes, the gerrymandering issue. I also think the issue of vote restoration for the formerly incarcerated mm. will be an issue that we will see coming to the fore. There have been several states that have really uh, been approaching this issue. Uh, in Maryland, for instance, they recently overturned the governor's veto to ensure that the formerly incarcerated would have their right to vote restored. In Congress, there is a federal bill, actually two, in fact, one a Republican-led bill, one a Democratic-led bill, seeking to restore voting rights to the formerly incarcerated. So I think we are going to see this intersection of race and voting and class continue to show up in the court uh, as we move forward. You know, it's interesting. We talk about the voter ID, the spate of voter ID cases that just came down. And that actually leads to another thing that happened in this term. I think it was the first instance that I kind of 
piece this together because I wasn't really thinking mm-hmm. this way, but uh, Mark Joseph Stern from um, from Slate wrote mm-hmm. this, that a lot of these voter ID cases were citing whole woman's health mm-hmm. for the proposition that the judges don't have to trust the state legislatures when the state legislatures say, oh no, this wasn't meant for race issues. <laughs> like, And they cite, like, wait a minute, that decision gives us free reign to not listen to mm-hmm. your claptrap mm-hmm. anymore, <laughs> which I thought was very interesting and maybe kind of a, a footnote to this session was that that decision, which seemingly had nothing to do with voter ID cases, mm-hmm. is now showing up. I think it's in all but one of the decisions mm-hmm, mm-hmm, that have just mm-hmm, come down. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I will say, yeah. with respect to these voting cases, I think there were reasons why the court said we don't have to listen to these state <laughs> legislatures. For one, some of those legislators actually went on record saying, such as in Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, well, definitely Pens- uh, yeah. you know, we voter ID is going to give us the election. <laughs> when you have legislators coming out publicly and saying things like that, well, that's a reason perhaps for the court not to listen to what the state legislature is saying. And also so much of the evidence showed that there was a concerted effort to make it harder for minority groups to actually engage in the electoral process. When you have that kind of evidence, Evidence, it then becomes difficult for the court to say uh, we have to show deference to the state legislatures when it seems as though the state legislatures are engaging in behavior that is quite questionable. Well, going back to Streif for a second, and it's kind of related, I suppose, but, but moving to the next term during the panel, Professor, you had a case that you were particularly concerned yes. about for next term. Yes. And I think we, we've all talked about how, and it came up in the panel also, that next term, partially because the current constitution mm-hmm. of 4-4, there's not as many big issue, big sticker cases coming up, but you have one that you thought is very interesting coming up. Yes, because Justice Sotomayor, this term, really staked out some territory for herself in the area of race and criminal justice. Next term, there's going to be a case coming out of Colorado, Peña Rodriguez, that is going to look at racially biased statements that were made in the jury room and whether or not those cannot be scrutinized because of a kind of an immunity that juries have, even though they singled out the defendant as being of Mexican origin and therefore having tendencies to take advantage of women, discrediting a witness as being undocumented when in fact he was not. But all of these were biased comments. Everyone admits they were biased comments. So one question is whether or not she will take on these issues of bias in the jury room and link them in any way also to this question of crimmigration, which is the growing criminalization of immigrants in the federal system of justice and the ways that that's having spillover effects on the perceptions of people of Mexican origin and immigrants in our domestic criminal justice system, our state criminal justice system. And so I think it will be fascinating to see how she addresses that. But that would clearly give her a chance to continue to build out the jurisprudence that she began to describe in her dissent in Streif. Interesting. So are there any cases other than that, that uh, I don't think, in the panel, I don't think we actually got to you on the question mm-hmm. of any future cases that you're real, particularly watching. No, there are, there are none that I'm particularly watching. Yeah. And I will say that I have colleagues at the Brennan Center who spend more of their time focusing on the Supreme mm-hmm. Court on a daily basis than I do. But in terms of the ones that I'm following, there are none that are, that are jumping out at me right. right now. Yeah, I know, obviously, you've been in, because you've done so much on the voting thing. You're you're riding high right now. You don't need it. The Supreme Court's not even in there. You're winning at the district courts. You don't need any of I'd this. I'd like to enjoy this moment. <laughs> <laughs> well, the the other thing, uh, and, and actually to follow up, like, yeah, that, that could be a very interesting case because Justice Breyer, who was obviously on the other side yes. on Streif, this will not be a criminal procedure Correct. case, which means he might 
go back. I mean, you, you mug a guy at Machete Point once, and he becomes really bitter <laughs> on criminal procedure, I guess. So with that said, I wanted to, one case that I don't think we talked at all about in the session, but I thought, well, I mean, it came up, but not directly, was Friedrichs and how that got sent back down being a 4-4 decision and basically saved unions uh, from what was inevitably going to be their end. Do you think with Friedrichs, obviously it, it saved them, but is this a sort of issue that I think is, it's, it's an issue, I'm now... I, I'm trying to phrase this as a question when I'm really just trying to be on a soapbox. So I'm just going to be on a soapbox. That's that's what I'm going to do. So I think this is a case that I think because of the way it just kind of disappeared, ceased to be as worrisome to people as it probably should have been uh, economically because to the extent that workers had any power left, uh, it was in real jeopardy. And I think that when the election's coming up and people are talking about what it might mean to have somebody on the other side, and even if it's somebody who's just kind of moderately on the other side, this is the kind of place where even a moderate, not necessarily somebody from the Heritage Foundation list, could cause some real damage to average working people. Yeah. But yeah, that's just the case that I, <laughs> that I was very scared about. Well, one of them. I was also scared about the Campbell Ewald yeah. thing because, you know, at this point, the court is so pro-business that mm -hmm. if they had NASCAR, they, if they were any more, they'd have NASCAR endorsements. And so that one I was terrified of, but, but here we are. We survived. Well, now let's go, though, to a case that we did talk about a lot in there, which is Fisher. And the fact that Justice Kennedy, out of nowhere, like completely right. left field, decides to, for the first time in 30 years, actually say, okay, affirmative action's all right. What's going on with Justice Kennedy these days? Um, I've always considered him a very right-wing guy who happens to clearly know gay people and not hate them. But is there something more to him now, a, a, a legacy feel, a just belief in the legitimacy of the court? Like, what's going on that makes him switch sides on this key issue? Well, you know, Fisher was an interesting case because the University of Texas had a very unique system of admission because Hopwood had barred affirmative action, and during that time, the Texas legislature adopted its 10% plan. After Grutter upheld affirmative action, the University of Texas added holistic review that considered race. So it's a mixed system. You don't really see that elsewhere around the country. But I think that Justice Kennedy had a number of reasons. First of all, it would have been a sea change in higher education. And we now know from the experience of places where affirmative action, as in, here in California, has been barred by popular referendum, the dramatic impact that can have on the representation of underrepresented groups, uh, particularly blacks and Latinos, in higher education. Um, and so I think that he might have had some reservations about being the justice whose vote determined that we might see dramatic drops in the representation of blacks and Latinos. Another thing that he did was he seemed to be willing to defer more to the institution here. And that's been a unique feature of affirmative action in higher education is that it's really related to some free speech, academic freedom concerns about letting institutions set their own admissions policies so long as they have a justification. The third thing is that Texas really, as Michigan did in Grutter, spent a lot of resources in putting together the case, putting together the evidence, and therefore, I think the strong representation may have also been persuasive. In a way, I think that, you know, Justice Kennedy has kind of harkened back to Justice Powell mm -hmm. in Baki. And so, as, as my colleague Mark Udoff said, it's Baki to the future. Um, and it almost reinstates that decision without ever directly citing it, which was fascinating. 
I also think that this was an example of Justice Kennedy really understanding the particularities of this case. I don't know what it says about how he might deal with this issue when perhaps another affirmative action case is brought before him from another institution that has a different formula and a different way of approaching affirmative action. I think that remains to be seen. I'm hopeful yeah. that it means uh, that there is a sea change mm -hmm. in terms of how he deals and looks at this particular issue, but I'm not so certain that he wasn't just very myopically focused on how do they do it at the University mm -hmm. of Texas, yeah. and that yes, this is palatable to me and I can okay this, but I may not necessarily okay another program from another institution that has similar goals. One interesting thing that uh, you mentioned in the panel is that the that there was kind of a difference in what race conscious and what neutrality really meant, that mm -hmm. he started kind of noticing that actually the 10% itself yes. was not necessarily quote unquote neutral. Yes, this was very interesting because the argument had been we have a race neutral means, which is the 10% plan that gets us a lot of diversity without using a race conscious approach. He cited Justice Ginsburg, who said that the 10% plan was deeply influenced by race considerations because Texas is heavily segregated and the legislature was responding directly to Hopwood and wanting to make sure that the institution remained racially diverse. So I think he was trying to say, look, you know, the 10% plan also was rooted in racial considerations. It's not clear that it's more race neutral than the holistic review, which is very modest at the back end of a process where the vast majority of the class are admitted through the purportedly race neutral 10% plan. So I yes, I think in a highly segregated stratified society where those considerations correlate heavily with race, it's hard sometimes to figure out what is and isn't race neutral. Yeah, and that again, I think, Personally, as you were saying that, I think that there's a lot of issues where this can come up. Um, and the future of potential voting cases, mm -hmm. uh, this is also an issue, whether or not some, something is for political reasons, race reasons, mm -hmm. et cetera, when you're districting. I think if this is something that's really starting to influence him going mm -hmm. forward, mm -hmm. I think it changes kind of that dynamic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I would also say, and not that we talked about this, but this whole issue of mass incarceration in the United States mm. and the way our criminal justice system is undergoing a change, or at least minimally a demand for change, I think that there will be cases dealing with this issue as well that will be coming up. And certainly that same way of thinking and process uh, and how you process those cases, I think, will impact that arena as well. Um, you know, as we are talking about policing issues and community issues and the disparate impact of our criminal justice system on minorities and the over-incarceration of Americans, I think that we are going to have to grapple yeah. with those issues all the way up to the Supreme Court at some point. And you know? in, and yeah. in Streif, there was this issue as to whether the warrant check was just a kind of a good faith standard procedure or whether it was part of a fishing expedition. And in her dissent, Justice Sotomayor points out that in Ferguson, Missouri, 16,000 of the 21,000 residents had an outstanding warrant. So that if you were to stop someone unlawfully and then do the warrant check, you had a very high probability of being able to move on to an arrest and a search based on the outstanding warrant, which could be for something like unpaid uh, parking tickets. Yeah. And then one thing that was brought up towards the end of the panel uh, it was something that Neil Katyal said was that he thinks that the on the horizon is a real challenge to the death penalty. And it seems as though that might be involved here, too. Obviously, mm -hmm. there's some yes. there's ample evidence that this is something where neutrality is not really at play. Mm -hmm. And if uh, Justice Kennedy is really starting to 
respect those issues. Uh, this could be a place where he's even amenable to crossing sides. Yeah, I, I think so. I, I think um, as we look at the death penalty and how it has been treated in the states, how we've had issues dealing with methodologies and problems with methodologies and the cruel and unusual impact of the way it's being administered. I think society as a whole is starting to question the validity of that particular punishment. And the court, I think, has to listen to that and has to focus on you know, whether we should be questioning uh, this mechanism as a whole. Yes, and I think, um, you know, there's a wonderful book called um, Just Mercy, is it? Brian Stevenson's book, talking about his work on the death penalty. And one of the things that Justice Sotomayor said was that this doesn't affect the individual who has that contact with the criminal justice system. It affects entire families and communities. And if you read his book, you realize that when he represents one of these defendants on death row, he's ministering to a family, a community, And they look to him for guidance because they've had so little access to justice. And so I think that, you know, that's going to be very interesting to see how Justice Sotomayor approaches that as well. Well, the final question I had was actually two different statements you made throughout the panel, Nicole, that I found interesting and jigsawed into something. So here we go. Uh, One thing that you thought was that we could be on the cusp of the beginning of kind of a Warren Court Part 2, given that we're starting to see more of these issues crop up, even, even Justice Kennedy mentioning some social justice research in what's going on, which I thought was very fascinating. But I also went back to a, dis- a statement you made earlier about executive power and how a lot of what's going on with executive power is that Congress is not functioning. And so we're looking to the president to do more to kind of break that gridlock and that that runs risks of potentially going the other way. And all I could think was in some ways like a, a new Warren court is this great thing, but it also, it's, it's almost executive power, just one removed where we stop relying on Congress to do something social justice wise because we're like, Oh, well, well they're going to handle it. Like to what extent is the kind of halo that we put around the Supreme court, as I've heard somebody say in the past, To what extent is that just kind of more kicking down the road that we have a dysfunctional local elections and bad Congress? Well, you know, I'm going to stick with this Warren Court example Mm. for a while, because if you look at the Warren Court, we didn't at that time have a dysfunctional Congress. We actually had a bullish president, if you will, who worked with a Congress who in many ways had to be persuaded, but who actually did move forward and enact some of the most sweeping civil rights legislation of our time. Uh, And in many ways, the court worked hand in hand, I think, with the effort that was coming from both the executive branch and the congressional branch. So in in many ways, you had a triumvirate of victories, if you will, where in all three branches of government were working together well. I'm actually hopeful that if we do see a Warren Court Part 2, that too will will be similar as well, that we will see that we have a Congress and a Supreme Court and an executive branch actually working more collaboratively together to address some of these social justice issues. And I do want to say I agree, the court cannot do it alone, but the court is the source of our aspirations as a people. It decides what the Constitution means to each of us. And the court's decision also correlated with significant political mobilization. You know, Patricia Williams said black people didn't really believe in rights, and yet they believed in them so hard they breathed life into them where there had been none before. But without rights that you believe can be enforced, can be given real meaning, you can become quite demoralized as a people about your capacity to participate 
in our affairs. And so I think the court also can lift all of us up and make us realize that we the people govern and it is our obligation to continue to hold our officials elected, appointed to the highest standards of a democracy. And I think the court just plays a unique role in that. You know, Gerald Rosenberg wrote a book called The Hollow Hope. And when she said the court doesn't do anything, I'm not so sure that that's the case. I think what the court does is it tells us what the framework is for the conversations we need to have about our future as a democracy. Well, great. I want to thank you both for coming here and, well, being on the panel in the first place, which was a great panel to watch, but also coming here to share that with some of the people who didn't manage to get here to watch it in person like I got to. So with that, I also want to thank everyone for listening. And if you enjoyed the episode, rate it on iTunes, you know, just five stars as a suggestion. Mm -hmm. You know, you can do whatever you want, but give us that. Give us some reviews. It helps us move up the relevancy rankings on the system. And we will talk to all the rest of you soon on another episode of On the Road with the Legal Talk Network. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS. Find us on Twitter and Facebook. Or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.